0: Good morning, Renewal. Thanks for joining us for another stay-at-home Sunday morning podcast. Uh, This week, we are beginning a new series, and we're going to spend the next couple of months reading through and studying the book of Judges from the Old Testament. Uh, Today, we're going to take some time to really kind of set the stage for our study of this book, Um, and so I hope that you will be following along. Uh, In the meantime, I would encourage you to take some time to read that. Read the book of Judges, maybe in your personal devotion times. Uh, maybe for some context, you would start uh, prior to that in the book of Joshua or even going back to read the Exodus. Uh, and then after you finish the book of Judges, you could always move on and, and read a little bit out of First and Second Samuel just to kind of understand the season of time that this book occurs in. Uh, the book of Judges is, is about and covers the period of time that occurs between the conquest and then the kingdom. And so it covers the years after after, uh, Israel's leaders of Moses and Joshua, and then before the prophet Samuel, who comes along and ends up appointing the first and second kings of Israel, which is King Saul and King David. The book covers something like 250 to maybe almost 350 years of history, depending on how you're counting things. And, uh, and while it, we're pretty sure of the period of history that it covers, uh, we know that in the book itself, things aren't always getting recorded in chronological order. Uh, and so there's a little bit of skipping around, or just because something happens in Judges chapter 7 doesn't mean that it happened before something in Judges chapter 5 or something like that. Anyhow, the main theme of the book, and really the main theme of this whole series, is going to be looking at the canonization of God's people. Um, And when I say canonization of God's people, um, what this means is that uh, God's people who are called to follow him become influenced by the religion and the culture around them to the point that they are no longer following God.
1: Yeah, so in the book of Joshua, which comes just before the book of Judges, Joshua leads the Israelites around the walls of Jericho and into the land of Cana. And the the theme of the book of Joshua is really a, a theme of conquest and victory through obedience to God. God's people are faithful, and he cares for them. He delivers them. Uh, victory after victory, and they are tasked, however, with ridding the land of the Canaanites and the Canaanites' practice of worship to other gods. The book of Judges begins with the effects of a generation now that are growing up in a land that was not completely rid of the Canaanites, and their worship to the gods of Baal. So, They begin to forsake uh, the God that delivered them out of Egypt, they forget what he had done for them, and ultimately those gods become their hope for deliverance.
0: Yeah, there's a paragraph from Judges chapter 2 that that really sums up this whole thing quite nicely. Uh, In Judges 2 verse 10, it talks about how this, this whole first generation that had, you know, gone with Joshua, they all pass away, they're gathered to their ancestors, and this new generation uh, grows up in Israel, and they didn't know the Lord, and they weren't familiar with the stories of what he'd done for Israel, and so they fell away from God. They began to serve the Baals, they, they began to serve the, the Um and so God looks at his people who have forsaken him, and in his anger, the chapter says that the Lord handed them over to the hands of raiders who would then plunder them, and that he would give them to their enemies, no longer defending them, and their enemies would overrun them. They wouldn't be able to resist them. And so uh, you have this image of God sort of stepping away and and instead of interceding and interfering through the course of history, defending his people, going before them in battle, giving them victory, he's kind of stepping away and turning them over uh, to be trampled by the people around him. And so this would happen and Israel would be in great distress. And then the Lord would raise up judges in the nation who would save them out of the hands of these oppressors. And, and, and yet they, they would never follow, they would never listen to the judges. They would always end up, uh, the verse says in verse 17, actually, they would prostitute themselves to other gods and they would still worship them. And so they would so quickly, uh, after God delivers them, they would quickly turn back to uh, disobeying his commands. And so the Lord would raise up another judge and he would save them from their enemies. And then maybe as long as that judge lived, they would be, uh, you know, faithful to him. Uh, But as soon as the judge was gone, they'd be right back to their sin. And so through this process, we see the canonization of God's people he brought them into this land to be a light, he delivered them, he established them as a nation with an intention that they would be an example to the other nations, that they would influence the other nations, that the, the world would be transformed through the witness of Israel. Um, and so Israel was supposed to be a human vehicle through which God's goodness and his love would be revealed, made manifest to the world around them. And yet, Israel refused to walk closely with God, refused to be transformed by God's character, refused to be filled with God's spirit and to bear His message of healing and reconciliation to the world around them. And instead, they over time just became more and more like the nations around them and over time became more and more committed to uh, to following the other nation's gods. Uh, and so they didn't achieve what God had, planned for them or intended for them to achieve in the Promised Land.
1: Yeah, I mean, they forsake God altogether um, and end up worshiping other gods, and they're corrupted by the culture, the practices. And during this time, Israel really finds themselves in a horribly vicious downward cycle. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle that they can't seem to get out of. As James mentioned earlier, um, that cycle begins with kind of an onslaught of sin, And then through the sin of the people, um, they begin oppressing the people around them, and then they repent of that sin, and um, they start calling out to God for the Savior, and they experience a time of peace. And then ultimately, that cycle just begins to um, return on itself. So it's like beginning, middle, beginning, you know, the story just comes back to the beginning again, and they find themselves right back in the same position as they were before. And it seems to me an appropriate message to talk about one of the darkest times in Israel's history as we enter into this first week of Lent. Lent is a time for Christians to be aware of their sin, to consider the ways they are either helping advance the kingdom or possibly even hindering it. Uh, Lent is a season of reflection and repentance from the sin that has distracted us. It can be a season that looks forward to the deliverer who came to institute true justice and real peace on earth. Between now and Easter, we're going to be studying a time in Israel's history that displays how God raised up a person or a judge that would deliver his people and get them back on the right track. But full disclosure, these stories of human deliverers don't end very well. They have glimpses of hope, but each of these leaders that you'll see in the book of Judges throughout this series, they fall short. Um, even Gideon, the, the big famous, uh, story, you remember the guy that defeats the army with only 300 men with just torches and clay pots and a lot of yelling, um, yeah, Gideon ends up murdering a bunch of his fellow Israelites for not helping in the battle, and he makes an idol out of the gold that he wins from his battles, and um, the people end up worshiping that idol instead of God. And so, I think it's safe to say that this book is kind of really nothing short of tragic.
0: Yeah, it really is. There's a story at the end of Judges where uh, a, a portrait is painted of the, of the tribe of Benjamin that, that is intentionally meant to paint this tribe as worse than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it is just a process of them falling further and further from God. And it really could be a discouraging process. Um, I think one question we might ask when we read a story like this is, is, why is this story being told? Why do we have to uh, relive uh, such a, a horrible tragedy in the history of God's people? Especially when a story seems kind of repetitive or the cycle just keeps going over and over and getting worse and worse. And I really think a reason for that is that we are meant to reflect on Israel's experiences and wrestle with the truth that in this story, we are to consider ourselves like Israel. We are God's people. And we, like Israel, are in danger of being canonized. I think it's important to understand that when I, when I say being canonized, there's a religious aspect to it. I mean, being canonized was not so much about Israel moving into the promised land and then adopting the farming techniques or the economic strategies of the Canaanites. It was about blending their faith in Yahweh, their devotion to Yahweh, with the Canaanites' cultural and religious beliefs and expressions. I, I think sometimes we can see our own canonization on display in our own lives, in our own modern-day uh, culture with some of the religious convictions that, that are uh, on display all around us. Do you think it's safe to say, James, that being Canaanized
1: would, in other words, be saying something to the effect of God or Yahweh is not worthy to um, be trusted?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it.
1: I, I mean, I read this really interesting article this morning about Uh, charismatic Pentecostals and evangelicals who had been prophesying about Donald Trump getting elected for a second term. And you can feel in the article this, like, a real disdain for Christians. Um, They were pointing out the flaws in, in their prophecies and how after Trump doesn't win that second election, many of them... It's, it's mind-boggling. They continue to hold on to these prophecies and say, well, yeah, but Biden's going to fall and Trump will regain the presidency. And I don't know. I'm just sitting here reading this article this morning, and I'm thinking to myself, um, it's almost as if it was written in the subtext of the article. Um, this like sort of American nationalism mixed with <laughs> American Christianity Um, calling out this question, who is going to be our deliverer in this really dark time in America's history? Will it be Trump? Will it be Biden? And I found myself talking back to the article, and I'm just
0: going, Christians already have a deliverer, and it's Christ. I think there is no better way to describe canonization on display than God's people forgetting who their deliverer is and, and becoming entangled in uh, various uh, doctrines or even theologies that, uh, that maybe have a lot of cultural value to them and they appeal to us on a cultural level, but, um, but they are not the gospel. I think of the prosperity gospel that is, is you know, very popular in much of the Western world. And the thing about the prosperity gospel is it's this melting together of Christian faith and in materialism or a melting together of Christianity and and even like more of a a nationalism or uh, even a capitalism and there's just enough gospel in it there's enough scripture references and and enough christianese things that followers of Jesus become comfortable embracing it at the same time there's enough prosperity in it to appeal to you know good consumer capitalists that many of us you know are born to be um, and then if you sprinkle in a dose of heartwarming patriotism, then, then we have, it's like we have this religion that is tailor-made for people born in America in the, you know, 20th century, 21st century now, I guess. Um, but I think the question for us, is that a gospel that is built on the foundation of Christ, or is it a gospel that's built on the foundation of Christ and something else? And I think, especially when Christians are, you know, holding fast to like these prophecies, like you mentioned in that article, I think that in some ways there is, uh, I guess, an extra block in that foundation uh, to where democracy is part of the foundation of my life and, or, you know, the the uh, the hope of, of a, a democratic republic uh, and Christ is my hope too. And And I have no doubt that's how it started for Israel back in Judges. You know, they probably didn't go straight from worshiping Yahweh one day to erecting the temple to Baal the next day. Like, there was probably a bit of a mix in there and a period where, uh, you know, actually, I think Baal and Yahweh are the same person. Or maybe Baal is, is like Yahweh on steroids. I don't know. I don't know enough about the worship of Baal. <laughs> To sort all that out, but I imagine it's like that. And anytime we find ourselves building the foundation of the gospel on something other than Jesus Christ, uh, we are being Canaanized. I, I really think it's the farther you
1: get away from God being active in the center of what you're doing, right? So it can happen to any of us. You know, like enough time passes where we don't have experiences or we we haven't um, heard from God afresh in our own life. And enough time passes, and it it is very easy to let all sorts of other voices, all sorts of other focus, all sorts of other priorities come into full view and perhaps be the more important voice in our life. And ultimately, it changes the way that we think about the world. It changes our worldview, our theology. It changes the things that are important to us. I think the thing that's scary about that is that a Canaanized Christian— often becomes more passionate about that new cultural expression of their new God than their own gospel.
0: Yeah, I'm remembering an email that I recently got from a Christian nonprofit that was communicating a real frustration with their lack of volunteers. And this particular nonprofit takes a political stance on on a current hot button issue. And the first three paragraphs of the email were all about how anyone who doesn't agree with them and their political strategies isn't a true Christian, and, and so this letter to me was a great example of uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not just building the gospel on Christ, I'm also building on particular political strategies, and, um, and then they can't understand why they can't motivate Christians to come and volunteer as a part of their organization. I think an important question to answer in all of this is what is the gospel? And I think the simplest presentation of the gospel in scripture is that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, and he is no longer counting our sins against us. This is the testimony of who God is in scripture. And, And this Christ, this Savior, invites each of us to take up our cross and to follow him in this new and living way. And I think if we're really honest, there are many aspects of our modern life and our modern culture that are in opposition to these truths, that God would invite us into relationship with himself, he's no longer counting his sins against us, and that there is a Lord and Savior who has invited us to take up our cross and follow him. Some things that stand in opposition to that could be our own desires for comfort or our own sense of entitlement to certain rights. It could be our own need for affirmation, or our own prejudice against certain groups of others that we wouldn't want to see as reconciled to Christ. Sometimes it could be some of the comforts and the blessings that we experience. I think it's telling in the book of Judges that Israel would, wouldn't wander away when they were suffering. They'd come back to God when they were suffering. They would wander away when everything was going great it just makes me wonder why we would ever pray that things go great if staying close to the Lord is really our primary motivation. But we know in the midst of all of this that there is a shepherd for humanity, a shepherd who has called us to follow a narrow way as we walk with him and as we live in our own version of Canaan. So the question for us is, will we live in Canaan as God's people and not become Canonized, or maybe better yet, how do we live in Canaan as God's people and not become canonized? I know I'm looking forward to uh, reading through this book and hopefully learning from our ancestors together, uh, learning uh, how it is that we can live in Canaan and not become canonized by the people around us, um, so that we can, you know, use this book in Scripture to uh, to help us to follow Jesus more closely. Do you want to pray us out? Sure. God, thanks for this season of Lent.
1: Thank you for a season where we can stop and reflect on our own lives, on um, the life of our church, Um, perhaps where we have sinned or fallen short of what it is you are doing and saying and trying to accomplish. Forgive us if we've um, oppressed those that are supposed to be loved by you. And we do call on you, the Christ, to be our deliverer in this season, to give us a true hope. And I I would ask that you would show us yourself, make it recognizable to us that we would see the Christ in um, things that are happening around us, that we would see you active and at work so that we would join in on what you're trying to say and do in our culture today. Give us a kingdom mind. We love you. Amen.